Well, good morning. Good morning. Happy Easter. We refer to this around the church as Victory Sunday. You know, this is kind of our Super Bowl because everything that we have has to do with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And that resurrection is the key. Now, let me promote something before we get started this morning. Um, in July, I hope to start a podcast. What I want to do is I want to start teaching verse by verse through various books of the Bible. And I'm going to start in the book of Isaiah. Now, to give you a sneak peek of what it's going to be like, next week I'm starting a series on Isaiah chapter 53. And I'm going to bring out some information I think most people have never seen before. And I think it's going to really open your eyes to the power of the prophets and why the uh, disciples and Paul were able to prove Jesus Christ from the scriptures. So I'm really looking forward to doing the podcast. Hopefully you'll join me. It's for those who are interested in seriously studying the Word of God. You know, Wednesday nights we used to go verse by verse through various books of the Bible, and that was my favorite time, I have to be honest with you. Sunday mornings is okay, but it's kind of surface level. Wednesday nights were the deep things, and so I'm really looking forward to doing that. Anyways, Easter is a time that we celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, most pastors will either focus on Jesus' death or his resurrection in their Easter sermon, but they really rarely talk about what happened in between his death and resurrection. You see, the Bible says that as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Matthew, chapter 12, verse number 40, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. But first, let me give you a little bit of background information. The Pharisees were always upset with Jesus because he didn't keep their traditions. He kept the law, but he didn't keep their traditions. And they hated that. In fact, he looked at the oral law and referred to them as the commandments of men. So they came to Jesus and they said, if you're the Christ, if you're the Messiah, give us a sign. Do something miraculous. Now, that's funny to me because Jesus had already been doing all of these miraculous things. You want a sign, just take a look at what Jesus has done. He's turned water into wine. He's made the lame walk. He's made the blind see. He's done all of these wonderful things, even brought some of the dead back to life. And you're asking for a sign. And so Jesus said, an even adult, evil and adulterous generation wants a sign. I'll give you a sign. One sign, the sign of Jonah. And that's when he said this, all right? So follow along with me as I read this. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And of course, Jesus was talking about the time period between his death and his resurrection. So what happened during those three days and three nights. In other words, what happened to Jesus' soul after he died? Because we know what happened to his body. It was laid in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. But what happened to his soul? Where did it go? Did it go to heaven? Did it go to hell? Did Jesus kind of hang out in the tomb for three days and three nights? What happened to his soul? Well, that's what I want to talk about this morning. But first, we need to talk about death in general. You know, this is interesting to me, but the majority of Christians have no idea what happens to a person when they die. And I think that's why Christians are so scared of dying. It's because they don't know what's going to happen. I mean, the Bible tells us exactly what's going to happen. You should know what happens to your soul when you die. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about death in general and what happens to a soul when a person dies. So, what does happen to a person's soul when they die? Well, prior to the resurrection of Jesus, when a person died, their soul went to a place called Sheol. And it didn't matter whether they were good or evil, everyone's soul went to this place called Sheol. Now, according to Numbers chapter 16, verses 30 through 33, Sheol is in the center of the earth, the heart of the earth. That's why Jesus said what he did in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Look back at that again. When he said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's talking about his soul being in Sheol 
for three days and three nights. Now, Isaiah describes Sheol as a city with gates. You'll find that in Isaiah chapter 38, verse number 10. Job says that it has bars. You'll find that in Job chapter 17, verse 16 in the King James Version. Job also says that it's a land of darkness. Look at Job chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. If only I had never come into being or had been carried straight from the womb to the grave. Wow. Job was down. He'd lost everything. And you know what he's saying? I wish I'd never been born. Or if I had been born, that I would have died in childbirth. And then he goes further. Are not my few days almost over? Turn away from me so I can have a moment's joy. Before I go to the place of no return. To the land of gloom and utter darkness. To the land of deepest night of utter darkness and disorder where even the light is like darkness. David referred to Sheol as the land of forgetfulness because you're eventually forgotten by those who are living. And it's true. I don't remember who my great-grandparents were. I don't even know their names. Only one of my great-grandparents was alive when I was born, and that was on my father's side. And I had this faint remembrance of going over to Grandma Nolan's, and my granny's bed was in the living room. She was bedridden, but she didn't want to miss out on conversations. That's all I can remember, besides that she actually used snuff and stunk. But if you ask me what was her name, I don't remember. Eventually, the living forget those who have died. And that's what David was saying. Now, in the New Testament, the Hebrew word Sheol is translated as Hades. And it bears resemblance to the Hades of Greek mythology in that it had two compartments. The first was a place of torment where the souls of the wicked were sent. And the second was called the bosom of Abraham. It's where the souls of those who believed in Yahweh and the coming of the promised Messiah were sent. This compartment was also referred to as paradise. Yeah, a.k.a. paradise. If you remember, Jesus told the thief on the cross today you will be with me in paradise. Most people don't understand what he's saying. They think that he's saying, today you're going to be with me in heaven. No, Jesus didn't ascend to heaven until after the resurrection. When he said, today you'll be with me in paradise, he's talking about the bosom of Abraham, which is a compartment in Sheol. So he wasn't talking about heaven as most people think. So it was a blissful place of comfort and security as opposed to the other side, which was a place of torment. In fact, Jesus gave us some great insight as to what the two components of Sheol were like. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Luke, chapter 16. We're going to read verses 19 through 26, and I want you to follow along as I read this passage of Scripture. It says, Now there was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen. Now, the reason it brings out purple is because that was a very costly, very expensive dye. Only those who were very wealthy and usually just those who were royalty had things that were made of purple. That's why it brings this out. There was a certain rich man and he was habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. Nice home, up-to-date chariot. Anything and everything that you would want. Swimming pool, yeah. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table, if only. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Gross. Dogs would do that, though. Now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, that's the Greek word for Sheol. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. And he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Anyone know why they called it the bosom of Abraham? Because supposedly 
any Jew that died who believed in Yahweh and also believed in the coming of the promised Messiah, when they went to paradise, Abraham was there to greet them, and the first thing he did was give them a big old hug. So it was referred to as Abraham's bosom. So he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. There's him giving Lazarus this big hug. Have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus received bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you're in agony. His life is better off. <laughs> Yours is not. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. Now, obviously, this is a parable. It's a fictitious story that's used to illustrate certain spiritual truths. That's what a parable is. In this case, it's illustrating spiritual truths about the afterlife. We want to know what the afterlife is like? Jesus tells us a parable. Its purpose is to illustrate certain spiritual truths about the afterlife. Yeah, what happens when a person dies? Now, remember, parables are allegorical in nature. That means that the people, things, or events in the parable are symbolic. Yeah. Now, what's interesting is that the characters are symbolic, but what the two men experience in this parable in the afterlife is not symbolic. In other words, the men are fictional, but what they experience is factual. Let me say that again because that's very important. The men in the parable are fictitious, but what they experience is factual. It's what really happened to a person in the Old Testament when they died. In fact, the name Lazarus, in fact, let me go a little bit further. Lazarus represents believers. The name Lazarus means God is my helper. So Lazarus represents those who trust in God and depend on him for their salvation. The rich man symbolizes unbelievers. Now that doesn't mean that rich people can't be Christians. That is not what this parable is saying. In fact, most of the patriarchs in the Bible were very rich. Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, they were very rich. Job, David, and Solomon, they were filthy rich. In fact, Solomon was so rich that silver was despised in his kingdom because gold was so abundant. And when you read what his kingdom had in every year, how much it increased in wealth, it's like, who is this guy? Bill Gates was never as rich. Warren Buffett was never as rich as Solomon. Yeah. The Apostle John came from a very wealthy and influential family to the point that they were a regular guest at the high priest's home while John was growing up. And many of the disciples came from wealthy families. You don't ever hear that because most people just repeat what pastors say who've never really studied it out. But I want you to understand something. Jesus was not dissing rich people. But the truth is, most rich people don't trust in God. They trust in their riches. So that's why the rich man represents unbelievers. Now, I want you to notice that when Lazarus died, his soul went to the bosom of Abraham where he was comforted. When the rich man died, his soul went to the place of torment. Now, both of these places were in Sheol, but they were on different sides. The bosom of Abraham was a place of comfort, and it was on one side of Sheol. On the other side was the place of torment. And there was a chasm between the two, and it kept people from crossing over from one side to the other. You couldn't get from one side to the other. If you ended up in the place of torment, there was no way that you could get to the side where Abraham's bosom was because this great chasm was fixed and it kept people from crossing over. Look back at Luke chapter 16, verses 22 through 26, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. That came about that Lazarus died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, what's Hades? The Greek word for Sheol. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. 
But now he's being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, this is the part I want you to see. Between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed. In order that those who wish to come over from there to us or from here to you may not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. So prior to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, this is what happened to a person who died. Look at the back wall. This is a timeline, and it starts with the fall. Why does it start with the fall? Because there was no death prior to Adam and Eve's sin. Had they not sinned, they would have lived forever. But once they sinned, death came upon this world, and death, death was passed on to all men. So we start at the fall. Sheol, it's already there. Someone's already taken to what I want. Can you go all the way back without the coffins? Thank you. Right there is the cross. The cross is the, symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, before the cross, you were in a period called the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. After the Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he initiated the New Covenant, what we call the New Testament. Now, when a person died, their, their soul went to Sheol. So what happened if a person died? They were buried, but their soul went to the bosom of Abraham if they believed in God and the coming of the promised Messiah. If they didn't believe in God, their body was bared, but their soul went to a place of torment. Now, in between these two places, all of this is Sheol, but there is a great chasm between the two. That chasm kept people from crossing over from the place of torment to the bosom of Abraham or likewise. I don't know why anyone would want to cross over to the place of torment, but that's what happened to people that died during the Old Testament period. So, just keep this in mind. Before the death of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection, everyone who died went to Sheol. They either went to the bosom of Abraham or they went to the place of torment. Now, when Jesus died, he experienced what all men do at death. His soul was separated from his body and it went to Sheol, the place of the dead. In fact, that's part of the Apostles' Creed. How many of you are familiar with the Apostles' Creed because you grew up in a church that recited it? Okay, I see a few hands. I think more of you than who's raising their hands actually did. If you were raised in the Methodist Church, if you were raised in the Presbyterian Church, the Episcopalian Church, or the Roman Catholic Church, you recited the Apostles' Creed. If you grew up in the Baptist Church or Assemblies of God Church, you did recite the Apostles' Creed. So you probably are not familiar with the Apostles' Creed. But this is what the Apostles' Creed says. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. His soul did. He was crucified, died, and was buried. And when his body went into the grave, his soul descended to hell. That's what the Apostles' Creed says. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Now, for Protestants, that's really hard to say because when they hear Catholic Church, they think of the Roman Catholic Church. But that's not what Catholic means. Catholic simply means universal. So what this is saying is, we believe that when someone accepts Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, they're part of the universal church. It doesn't matter what denomination you come from. It's one of the reasons we're non-denominational. Because it doesn't matter whether you're a raised Baptist, Assembly of God, Disciples of Christ, Church of Christ, Roman Catholic. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you're part of the universal church. And we believe in that. So let's keep going. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the community of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Now I want you to notice that the Apostles' Creed specifically states that Jesus descended into hell. 
which of course refers to his soul after he died on the cross. But what I want you to know is that the Apostles' Creed is based on Scripture. Yeah. The reason it's called the Apostles' Creed is because it's traced all the way back to the 2nd and 3rd century. And supposedly it's what the Apostles believed, but the Apostles' Creed is based on Scripture. And that includes the part that says, He descended into hell. And when I say that it's based on Scripture, I don't just mean that it's based on one Scripture. I mean that it's based on several Scriptures. In fact, let me give you a few of those Scriptures. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalms chapter 16, verse number 10. Now, Psalms chapter 16, verse number 10 is a Messianic Psalm talking about Jesus. We know that it's talking about Jesus because Peter quoted it in Acts 2.27 in reference to Jesus. He's saying that Jesus fulfilled this scripture. So this is a messianic psalm that's talking about Jesus. Notice what it says. For thou wilt not abandon my soul and show. This is Jesus saying that. For thou wilt not abandon my soul, Jesus' soul, and show. Neither wilt thou allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Now, I want you to underline that word abandon. Abandon is translated from the Hebrew word za'ab. Za'ab means to leave. To leave. Now, I want you to think about this. If I leave something, what I'm doing is I'm allowing it to remain where it was. Let me say that again. If I leave something... What I'm doing is I'm allowing that to remain where it was. As an example, if I told you that I left my keys, what I'm saying is that I didn't pick them up. Instead, I left them where they were. So what Psalms chapter 16, verse number 10 is saying is that Jesus went to Sheol when he died, but God did not leave him there. He did not leave him where he was. And where was he? Well, according to Psalms chapter 16, verse 10, he was in Sheol. You see, if I tell you that I didn't leave the kids at the movie theater, you naturally assume that we were at the movie theater. Because I can't leave someone somewhere unless that's where they are. Does that make sense? If you come in and you say, did you leave the milk in the car? That means that the milk was in the car at one time. You say, no, I didn't. I brought it in. Or you say, I did. I'll go back out and get it. If you leave something, it means that you left it where it was. Does that make sense? So if God did not leave Jesus in Sheol, it means that Jesus was in Sheol. Does everyone get that? So, Jesus was in Sheol, but God did not leave him there, and neither did God allow his body to rot in the grave. Instead, he resurrected him. But my point is this, Jesus descended into Sheol, but God did not leave him there. Now look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now verse 9, now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? Where, the, where are the lower parts of the earth? Show. But I want you to notice it says, now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first? There's a sequential order to these events. First, he descended then he ascended. You can't get him out of order. That's why he used the word first. To let you know that there's a logical, sequential order of events. Jesus died. He didn't go to heaven immediately. No. When Jesus died, his soul went to Sheol. He descended where? The lower parts of the earth. First. And then he ascended. Now let's keep reading. Verse 10. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. In other words, fulfill all things. Now, I want you to notice two things about this passage of Scripture. First, that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he led captivity captive. In other words, all of the souls that were in the bosom of Abraham, he took to heaven when he ascended. Yeah. The reason that they're referred to as captives 
It's because they were held captive in Sheol until the Messiah came and redeemed them. Remember, the Old Testament referred to Sheol as a city without or a city with gates and bars, and there was no way to escape it. Yeah. And the reason they couldn't go to heaven when they were in the Old Testament is because their sins had not been paid for yet. But once Jesus died and his soul went to Sheol and he paid for those sins, once he was resurrected, he was able to take those souls from Sheol to heaven with him. The second thing is what I, what I want you to notice, and this is where I was going. Second thing I want you to notice is that before Jesus ascended heaven, he first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Look back at verse 9, you see what I'm talking about. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first, this is the correct sequential order of events, into the lower parts of the earth. The lower parts of the earth always referred to Sheol. It didn't matter if you were a Greek or a Jew, you knew that Sheol was in the lower parts of the earth. So there's no doubt that what Paul was talking about is that Jesus descended into Sheol, or what we would call hell. In Hebrew, it's Sheol. In Greek, it's Hades. In English, it's hell. But they all refer to the same place. So when Jesus' work was done in hell, he took those who were held captive in the bosom of Abraham to heaven with him. Yeah. And that's what the Apostles' Creed says. It says, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. So, historically, the church has always taught that when Jesus died, his soul descended into hell in order to pay the penalty for our sins. And if you want to verify what I'm telling you, all you have to do is go back and read the writings of Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Cyril of Alexandria, Origen, Athanasius, and Thomas Aquinas. And what you'll find is that they all believe that when Jesus died, his soul descended into hell in order to pay for our sin. In fact, the two greatest scholars of the Reformation. Who were the two greatest scholars of the Reformation? You should know. John Calvin and Martin Luther. Yeah. The two greatest scholars of the Reformation, Calvin and Martin Luther, believed that when Jesus died, his soul descended into hell in order to pay for our sin. In fact, let me read a portion from John Calvin's book called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. This is the one-volume set. You can also get them in three volumes. I have both sets, but let me say something about this. John Calvin wrote this, and the reason it's so important today, I don't recommend that you actually buy it and read it. I had to read it because uh, my degree was in biblical literature with an emphasis in historical theology. So I had to learn how doctrines formed uh, through the history of the church how these doctrines came about. And what's interesting is this is one of the required readings. But the reason this book was so important is because this was the very first systematic theology book of the church. Yeah. No one had ever written a systematic theology book till John Calvin came along. And John Calvin said, I'm going to write a systematic theology book, but he didn't call it that. He called it the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Yeah. Now, you can find what I'm getting ready to read on page number 331, in fact, if you want to come up afterwards, you can actually read it here. I'm going to read it to you. I put it in my notes so that I don't have to hold a book while I read it. But anyways, follow along as I read this from John Calvin's book. Here's what he says. But apart from the creed, what creed is he talking about? The Apostles' Creed. But apart from the Apostles' Creed, we must seek for a sure exposition of Christ's descent to hell. Why? Because remember, in the Reformation, it was not, we're not basing what we believe on tradition. It's Scripture. Sola Scripture. In other words, only Scripture will we base our doctrines on. So John Calvin says, hey, apart from the creed, we have to seek a more sure exposition of Christ's descent to hell. And notice what he says. And the Word of God, the Bible, furnishes us with one. Not only pious and holy, but replete with excellent consolation. So what he's telling you is, Jesus descended to hell. This isn't just stated in the Apostles' Creed. You need to understand something. The Scripture teaches that. 
Let's keep reading. Nothing had been done if Christ had only endured corp- corporeal death. If you're in Cherokee County, you pronounce that corporeal. But actually, it's corporeal. What does corporeal mean? It means bodily death. So what he's telling you is nothing has been done if only Christ died on the cross. If all Jesus suffered was the death of his body, you're still in your sin. That's what John Calvin is telling you. Some of you believe that all Jesus did was die on the cross and that was enough. I get all these comments all the time because my sermons are out there on YouTube and Vimeo and all of these different places. And most people... Watch them with an open mind, but you get a few that don't. And they'll say, this is a heretic, don't listen to him. He believes that Jesus descended into hell. Yeah, along with all of the early church fathers. And along with the scriptures. This is what John Calvin is saying. He's saying, if Jesus just died on the cross, you're still in your sin. Let's keep going. In order to interpose between us and God's anger... In other words, pay for this in order to be a propitiation and expiate your sin. In order to do that, in order to interpose between us and God's anger and satisfy his righteous judgment, it was necessary that he should feel the weight of divine vengeance. When also it was necessary that he should engage, as it were, at close quarters with the powers of hell, and the horrors of eternal death. He undertook and paid all the penalties which must have been exacted from them, the only exception being that the pains of death could not hold him. Hence, there is nothing strange in it being said that he descended to hell. Let me say that again. In his words, he's saying, there's nothing wrong with saying that because that's exactly what he did. You shouldn't think it's strange that we say that he descended to hell. Seeing he endured the death which is inflicted on the wicked by an angry God. What is inflicted upon the wicked by an angry God when they die? They go to hell. They go to hell. How many of you believe that when a person doesn't, who doesn't receive Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior, when they die, they go to hell. If you didn't raise your hand, I've got news for you. You're wrong. If you don't accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you die, you're going to hell. Because you said, I don't want Jesus to pay for my sins. I'll pay for my own sins. And you will. John Calvin here says, seeing he endured the death which is inflicted on the wicked by an angry God. When a person dies... God inflicts this upon them. What does he do? He sends them to hell. Then he goes further. The creed. What creed? The Apostles' Creed. The creed appropriately adds the invisible and incomprehensible judgment which he endured before God. You didn't see what he did when he went to hell. It's invisible. But let me tell you, it's every bit as real as what he died on the cross. To teach us that not only was the body of Christ given up, as the price of redemption, but there was a greater and more excellent price that he paid. What price was that? That he bore in his soul the tortures of a condemned and ruined man. In other words, his soul went to hell. Martin Luther believed that too. Not because that's the tradition of the church, but because the Word of God teaches that. So as you can clearly see, Calvin believed that when Jesus died, his soul descended into hell in order to pay for our sin. So historically, the church has always taught and believed that Jesus didn't just die on the cross and that was it. No, when he died, his soul descended into hell in order to pay the penalty for our sin. Of course, today, you have those scholars who, or people who've been influenced by liberal scholars who don't believe that the Bible says what it means or means what it says. So they twist the Word of God to try and make it say what they want it to. And they want to make it sound like, well, you know, really, Jesus didn't have to do that much to pay for our sin. In fact, let me show you a video clip of several scholars doing that. Let's run that video clip. He descended into hell actually refers to what happened to Jesus on the cross. Uh, On the cross, 
he descended into hell in the sense of suffering the, the consequences of sin, penalty of sin, uh, as we should have done. He paid hell, as, it's, as we could say, on the cross there and then. The descent into hell means the agony that Christ suffered on the cross. That the agony, the spiritual agony that Christ suffered in that cry of abandonment meant that he descended into the hell that human beings suffer. And that the hell was on the cross. And that that cry of abandonment exemplifies the pain of hell. In other words, what they're saying is, Jesus so didn't go to hell. It was hell being on the cross. That was his descent. People, that's not what the scriptures teach. In fact, that doesn't even line up with the mosaic sacrificial system. Because when you, you would slay the animal, the sacrificial animal, you had to take the fat of the animal and you had to take certain organs and you took it to the altar where the flame was and you burned it upon the altar and it symbolizes the soul being punished for the sin because that was a penal substitution for the person's sin. Yeah, yeah. But scholars want to come in and twist things if they're liberal. People, that's not true. The Bible says what it means and it means what it says. When Jesus died, his soul descended into hell in order to pay the penalty for our sin. And that's where he was during those three days and three nights between his death and his resurrection. But when all of our sin was paid, God raised him from the dead. And when he raised him from the dead, he took captive those in captivity. Who were those in captivity? Not those in the place of torment. They weren't looking for the Messiah. But he took those who were in paradise, a.k.a. the bosom of Abraham, and he took those souls to heaven with them. They were part of the first fruits. Yeah. Now, what happened to the two thieves that were on the cross? Because Jesus said to one of the thieves, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Well, look back at the timeline on the back wall. I want to show you something. We put two crosses up here. Those two crosses represent the thieves. Now, we put them on either side of them, and the reason we did that is because that's how it's naturally depicted. The problem is, and this is what I want you to see, is before Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, you were still in the Old Testament period. The New Testament period did not begin until the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everyone with me? In other words, the new covenant is not initiated until after the resurrection. So when do the thieves die? Do they die under the New Testament or the Old Testament? They died under the Old Testament. So when those two thieves died, where do they go? Well, one was a believer and one was not a believer. In fact, one's saying, but if you're the Christ, you do this. The other one rebukes him and says, don't say that. Can't you see? He doesn't deserve to die. We do deserve to die. Jesus looks at the one and he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Where's paradise? Bosom of Abraham. So you've got these two thieves. When they die, both bodies are buried. But the one thief goes to the bosom of Abraham, a.k.a. paradise. Now, later on, where's paradise? After the Jesus' ascension and his resurrection. Paradise is now heaven. It's where you're comforted. But before that, you couldn't go to heaven because your sins hadn't been paid for. Everyone with me? The unbeliever soul goes to the place of torment. Now, let me ask you another question. Is Jesus God? Not a trick question. Is Jesus God? Yes, Jesus is God. If Jesus isn't God, your sins haven't been paid for because he wouldn't have the attribute of infinitude, which would mean that he can't die for everyone. He can only die for one person. But Jesus is God. Now, he emptied himself while he walked on this earth. That's what Philippians chapter 2 tells us. It's called the kenosis doctrine. But I want you to understand something. Jesus is and was God. So as God, Jesus is omnipresent. 
Now let me ask you another question. Is God in hell? What did the pastor do today? What did he teach on? He stumped us. He asked us, is God in hell? Is God in hell? Yes, God is in hell. Why do I say that? Because God is omnipresent. Omnipresent means that God is everywhere at all times. If God was not in hell, then God wouldn't be omnipresent. It would also mean that he's not omnipotent because his power is not in hell. Therefore, he's not all-powerful. He's powerful everywhere except in hell because he's not there. But God is everywhere at all times. In fact, the scriptures teach that. Look with me, if you would, in Psalms chapter 139, verses 7 through 8. Where can I go from thy spirit, or where can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. You see what David is saying? There's nowhere I can go that you're not there. I can't flee your presence. If I make my bed in Sheol, You're there. Your presence is there. Let me show you something else that will kind of screw with you. <laughs> Look in Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 10. What happens to the people who took the mark of the beast? Notice what it says. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He, who's he? The one who takes the mark and worships the beast in his image. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, and in the presence of the Lord. They're going to be cast into hell, but they're still in the presence of the Lamb. Yeah. So, when he told the thief on the cross, he said, today with you will be with me in paradise. What he was saying is, you're going to go to paradise. I'll be with you because my presence is there. I'm omnipresent. But my soul is going to hell to pay for your sin so you can be in paradise. My soul is going to hell so you can be taken captive to heaven. I'm changing locations where paradise is. It's going to, be, it's going to move from the, from the bosom of Abraham to heaven. Yeah. That's what he's saying. Now, let me say this because this is used quite a bit. Someone who doesn't believe that Jesus went to hell in order to pay for our sin, they'll say this, well, Jesus said it is finished. In other words, everything he needed to do to pay for our sin is finished. That's not what that means at all. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Did you know that? Yeah. Jesus was crucified on Passover. But more specifically... He died just as the very final lamb was being slain, the lamb of the high priest. Let me explain something to you. Josephus tells us, in fact, it's up here if you want to read it afterwards. Josephus tells us that in 65 AD, over 256,500 lambs were slain. It was an automatic process. What you did on April the 10th is you picked out your lamb had to be spotless, had to be without blemish for your family. Everyone did that. But something else happened. The high priest went and he picked out his lamb that was going to be the lamb for the whole nation. In fact, when Jesus does his triumphal entry, he upstaged the high priest because what normally happened is on the, on, on the Nisan the 10th, when they would take his, his high, the high priest would take his lamb, he would come into the city and everyone would come out and they would have these palm branches and they're waving them. But something upstages the high priest. As he's coming into the city, Jesus rides in on a coat. And all the people start waving to him. And boy, it infuriates not only the high priest, but all the Pharisees. And they said, do you hear what they're saying? Shut them up. 
Jesus, of course, is the final Passover. So he's the Passover lamb. He says, if I shut them up, said even the rocks would cry out. But anyways, so he comes in. And for four days, he goes to the temple because every day when after, on the 10th after you picked out your lamb, you had to inspect them every day to make sure there was no blemish. On the 14th of Nisan, you're going to kill it. Now, as I said, Josephus said over 256,000 lambs were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Passover, and they had to be brought to the temple. And people look at that and go, how in the world did they do that? Well, people, let me just tell you, it was like an assembly line. All these priests were there, and you brought your lamb in, and they slit its throat. They caught the blood. They passed it on. You took the lamb out. The next lamb's brought. They cut the throat. They take the blood. They pass it on. They get an empty one. They're doing this, and they've got these, these, got these lines, and the one at the very end is taking that blood, and he's throwing it upon the altar. Starts at 9 o'clock, but by 3 o'clock, you've got to be finished. Because the high priest has other duties. He's got to go mark the sheaves that's going to be used in preparation for the Feast of First Fruits that always happens on the first day of the week. So at 3 o'clock, it's over. And at 3 o'clock, the high priest is now going to sacrifice his Passover lamb. So he walks up to the altar. It's, not, it's in a different place. And everyone sees that that's still there. And he lays his hands on there. He's laying on confessing the sins of the nation. They take this Passover lamb and whoosh, they cut it and they catch the blood. As they catch the blood, they pass it, or the high priest takes it and throws it on the altar. And then he takes a step back. And he puts up his arms and he says, It is finished! And what he means by that is, that's the last Passover lamb to be slain. Yeah. No other lamb can be slain now. This is the last one. At the very time, the Bible says at 3 o'clock, the very time that the high priest is doing that, Jesus, in John 19, tells us, verse 30, is on the cross. And he raises up one last time and he says, It is finished! And he dies, signifying that I am the final Passover lamb. Also signifying that the old covenant is coming to an end. The new covenant will be initiated on my resurrection. But when he said it is finished, he didn't mean that his soul didn't have to go to hell. He meant... I'm the final Passover lamb, slain for the nation, but more importantly for the world. There never has to be another one, because I'm it. Yeah. That's what he meant by it is finished. Yeah. Now, why is this important? In other words, what does it matter whether Jesus so went to hell or not? Well, I'll tell you why it matters. It matters because it's proof that all of my sins have been paid for. So when I die, I don't have to go to the bosom of Abraham. Instead, I get to go to heaven to be with my Lord and Savior. In fact, let me show you what happens today in the New Testament period when people die. Okay, in the New Testament, you have two people. These two people, they represent the categories, two categories. One category is people who believe in Jesus and accept him as their personal Lord and Savior. The other category of believers who say, no, Jesus is not my Lord and Savior. So, when they die, their bodies go into the ground. When you die, your body's going to go into the ground. If you're a believer, your soul goes to heaven to be with the Lord in his presence. If you're an unbeliever... Your soul goes to the place of torment. Now, one day, this is what's great. The Bible says that Jesus is going to come back. And those who have died are going to come back with him. And he tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 
that all those who are in heaven that are coming back with him, their bodies are going to rise from the grave and be reunited with their soul. And they're going to have a resurrected body just like Jesus. That's why in the Apostles' Creed, after it says he is seated, we talk about what we believe. In the very end, we get to it says, and we believe in the resurrection. Because my mama's dead. But if I don't die before the rapture happens, when I'm raptured, I'm going to see my mama in a physical body. It looks like she's about 28 years old. I'm going to see my dad in a resurrected body. Yeah. We're going to go back to heaven. We're going to enjoy the marriage feast of the Lamb. And then we're coming back with him to reign and rule during the millennium. 